Thanks, Johnny. Good morning, everyone. How are you guys? Well, you're about not to be. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> uh, I'm glad I could joke. Um, so Nathan and I were riding. Uh, Nathan's my oldest son. Oh, by the way, kiddos, you're dismissed. Thanks for being with us, kiddos. Awesome to worship with you uh, anytime. Uh, we love having our kiddos in here. But yeah, feel free to go back to your classes. Um, so yeah, I was riding with Nathan, my oldest son, the other day. And he said, hey, Dad. Uh, he used pretty strong language. He was like, I hate long talks. I like short talks. And uh, so that tells you a lot about me. I was like, oh, wait a minute. You're talking about me, Nathan? <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Um, so I'm going to try to keep it short. I, uh, the last time I spoke was on Psalm 59, which had 17 verses. And I spoke for about an hour. There's 35 verses. So I'll let you do the math. You guys are going to be late for lunch. I'm just kidding. We're not going to go that long, uh, but what I am going to do, and I hope uh, to stay true to the text, um, but if some of you are expecting some certain things from the passage this morning, I'd love to talk to you about it after this. Uh, for instance, if you're like, man, I really hope he hits uh, verse 18, which uh, Paul references in Ephesians 4.11 about the Lord ascending on high and giving gifts to men, I'd love to talk to you about that. It's just not going to happen this morning. Um, so I'm going to give you like an overview, and then I'm going to piggyback uh, from that. So uh, yeah, here's, here's some background info to Psalm 68. Um, you see me looking at uh, these notes a lot. Again, this was my time in study, and I don't want to miss what the Lord shared with me for me to share with you. Uh, so I'll do my best to gaze at you. Psalm 68, without explicit mention of the Ark of the Covenant, was written with the Ark of the Covenant in mind. It was being brought into Jerusalem during the time of David's reign as king. So that's what Psalm 68 is, is kind of referencing. In the book of Exodus, after God had rescued his people from Egypt and now leading them into the promised land of Canaan, uh, Moses was told by God uh, to make this Ark. And in this ark was supposed to be the ark of the testimony or the covenant or what you guys would know as the, the stone tablets, the Ten Commandments. So that was in the ark. And they were supposed to carry this ark with them from their camp. The ark would set out before them. It would find them a resting place and the people would, would come with the ark leading the way. Uh, but the ark was also used. People wanted to, uh, the people of Israel wanted to have victory over their enemies and so they would send the ark out first because that was to ensure victory for them. It didn't always work out that way, but uh, the Ark of the Covenant had gone through a series of places where it was kept. And one of those, it got captured by the Philistines during one of those uh, wars that happened um, because of some sin that the Israelites uh, were living in. Um, and when it was captured at that time, someone said, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God had been captured. For the people of Israel, the ark of God uh, was where the presence of the Lord was to meet with them. The ark of the covenant, not only did it have the, the testimony of the Lord inside of it, uh, it had on top of it was the mercy seat where the blood of sacrifices would be thrown onto the mercy seat. And on top of it, 
uh, where cherubim, where their wings would face, face each other, and God would speak to Moses from that place. Uh, super, super interesting how that happened, which I'll hit on uh, later, but um, when the ark was captured, people were saying the glory has departed from Israel. The ark of God was holy, and as some came to find, deadly because of negligence towards the handling, handling of it. As the Philistines found out, it only cursed them because of its improper locations, as opposed to being in the people among the people of Israel. It was with the Philistines, and so uh, they were starting to get afflicted by sickness. Uh, they started to have sores that bre- would break out on them, and finally, they had so much sickness they knew that it was the power of the God of Israel on them that they wanted to send it back, and so they they just basically uh, hooked it up to a cart, uh, let some let some oxen lead it, and and sent it back to Israel. Um, <clears throat> so the ark moved around from place to place, uh, ultimately sending it back to the people of God. Even among God's people, death broke out over mishandling of the ark. Eventually, the ark would be reclaimed and brought to Jerusalem. And it is in this psalm that we see glimpses of its procession from among God's people into the tabernacle. So what is clearly pointed out as this psalm reflects is the great majesty and power of God, as well as the reaction of people to him. So this psalm reflects the great majesty of God and how people react to God's great majesty. And that's what I want us to see as a whole this morning. So first, uh, let's grasp the majesty of God that this text gives us uh, as a whole by seeing who God is and what he's done. And then we'll take a closer look at uh, people's reaction toward him and our reaction in response to that. First, uh, this is a quick overview of this whole chapter so you don't think we we miss something. I I want you to see who God is, what he does. And as I'm reading these things, I hope we get a big picture of God. I don't, I don't want to necessarily make us feel so minute, but I want us to picture God as he really is. Monumental, huge, awesome, worthy, holy, good. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some of these, and let's, let's get a picture of who God is. God is powerful and mighty. He is the Lord. He has all authority. He is eternal. He is holy. He comes near. He provides. He restores. He protects and defends. He leads. He is good. He gives his word. He defeats. He's victorious. Can I get an amen on any of these, by the way? (laughs) He sets free. He scatters kings and makes them flee. Any king. At his presence, the wicked perish. God chooses. He bears up. He loads with benefits. He is salvation. He delivers from death. He strikes. He is praised. He deserves praise. He works. He is revered and rejected by kings. He rebukes. He tramples underfoot. He is worshiped and hated. He is majestic. 
He is awesome. He gives power. He gives strength. And, and that's a picture that this psalm gives us of God. So if you have time, read back through these 35 verses. Just be amazed at him. What I hope for us to focus on now is that God is, out of all that that, that I just read, God is all-powerful and holy. God is salvation. And God is worthy to be praised. God is all-powerful and holy. God is salvation, and he's worthy to be praised. You want to know the crazy thing? Our response. We have a couple of choices. Our response can be to rebel or to continue in rebellion. Our response can be to repent. Our response can be to rejoice. Rebel, repent, rejoice. That's what I want you to take away from this as well. Before we wrap up, there's going to be a time of response. These are the three areas that we're going to be hitting on. Uh, So back to God is all-powerful and holy. If we go back to uh, the beginning of Psalm 68, I don't know if we can get that on the screen, or you can look in your own Bible. Uh, Verse 1 tells us right out the gates, his enemies flee. God's enemies flee. Verse 2, the wicked perish before him. Verse 14, kings are scattered. Verse 12, kings of armies flee. Verse 21, he shatters the heads of the enemies. God's holy. Verse 3, his name is the Lord. He, uh, verse 4, he is God in his holy habitation. Verse 8, the earth quakes at his presence. We'll talk about that in a second as well, but uh, what does that even look like? The earth quakes in the presence of the Lord. Like, what if the real deal, man, if we saw this shaking before the Lord God at his presence? Verse 33, he rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times. God is most definitely set apart, and he is most definitely all-powerful. Exodus uh, 15, verse 11, I think we tried to get some of these verses for you to follow, so if, uh, if you don't have those, like, if you want to turn quick, you can. If not, just listen. Um, I'm going to roll through some verses that may, may not be on the screen, but Exodus 15, 11, this was said. Uh, this is right after the, the defeat of the uh, Egyptian army. So Moses sang a song, the Israelites sang a song, and in it they said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And then in Psalm 76, verse 7, it says, You are to be feared. Who can stand before you once your anger is roused? Whatever we've made of God, I wonder if we take what we've made of God and the list that I read out, and do they line up? And does that stir fear in us and awe for God? Back in uh, Numbers chapter 10, verses 33 through 36, this is actually um, when the Ark of the Covenant was 
going out before the people of Israel. This is the first place we actually see this same language that David uses in Psalm 68. It says, uh, They set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, and the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them three days' journey to seek out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever they, the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So this was language that David's using that has already been spoken regarding the ark of the Lord. Because Moses knew and David knew when God moved, when God arose, his enemies scattered. Like that was the only choice. If God moved, people <laughs> moved, Right? <clears throat> so question for you is what is one's posture before the holy God of Israel how do we posture ourselves before God almighty the God who is all powerful and holy how do we posture ourselves his people the people who were right with God the people of Israel they trembled at his great power and presence Exodus 19, 16 through, through 18 says this. On the morning of the third day, uh, they were supposed to come up to Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given. Uh, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. So you had the presence of God sitting on the mountain, and the whole thing is shaking. And you had the people at the base of the mountain who actually can't get on the mountain, but this is what they're visualizing. You, you guys ever seen anything like that, by the way? <laughs> What would it look like for us to see that, to see a mountain tremble before us because the Lord has descended on the mountain? Uh, it goes on to say in Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21, Now when the, all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were, af were afraid and trembled. <laughs> you think so? Right? <clears throat> and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, this is kind of comical in a way, they said, hey, Moses, you, you speak to us and we'll listen, uh, but don't let God speak to us or we're going to die. All right? Like they knew there was something about the awesome majesty of God in his presence. They were like, Moses, you, you go talk to him. We see what we're looking at here. You come bring the message back. Moses said, don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. I would be like, I mean, could you imagine Moses walking and leaving away, and he's walking to this thick cloud of darkness, and he's entering into the presence of God? And all of us are on the other side saying, like, you go, man. I've seen how all he is from a distance. There's no way I can come close. What else does the Bible say about God's power, his holiness, his wrath, his justice? I 
I'm going to say some things this morning uh, that I think I've often heard in Christian circles. They're like, hey, man, like, do we have to be like a fire and brimstone kind of proclamation when we're talking to people? And I would say, no, I want to say something to you that I don't want to scare you with, but I do want to speak to you the truth, right? If that moves you to be fearful, then praise God, because that's a result from his truth being spoken, but like there's something that can be done about it. So just hang tight with me. If I'm saying, if I'm bringing a lot to you that you may be like, man, that's fire and brimstone. We shouldn't speak that. It should be like a motivational speaking, like we don't walk out excited and don't say anything to hurt my feelings. Like, I just want to bring you the truth. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 10, just kind of looking forward, uh, verses 26 and 27. There can be a fearful expectation of God's judgment and consumption of God's adversaries by fire. It actually says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And it's that same language we see right up front at the beginning of Psalm 68. Like God arises, the wicked perish before him. It says they melt like wax. Right? That's a, they can be crazy. Um, but not only is God all-powerful, he's holy. God is, and this is what's great, God is salvation. Verses 19 and 20 of Psalm 68 says, God is very explicit. God is our salvation. To him belong deliverances from death. Not just deliverance from a present threat, but ultimately deliverance from eternal death to eternal life. So not only is God a salvation he's all-powerful he's holy but God is worthy to be praised praise him who is above the heavens and who is near to us verse 4 Psalm 68 says and 32 by the way says sing to God sing praises to the Lord translations differ on uh, verse 4 some some of them say uh, to him who rides through the clouds or on the clouds um I think the more I've studied that, the more I see it's, it's like the plains, or the deserts. Uh, sing praise to him who rides through the, through the deserts. This reminds me that this is praise from Israel to him who came down, personally present among them. So you have a personal God who comes personally among you. In verse 33, it says to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. This is praise for the kingdoms of the earth to him who is lofty and eternal, to the one who is wholly worthy of praise from all people at all times. That's a magnificent God. So what do we do with God? Again, our response is we can rebel or continue in rebellion, which we'll see in a sec. We can repent. We can rejoice. Firstly, Rebellion against God will only lead to destruction. Rebellion against God will only lead to destruction. Verse 6 uses this rebellious uh, language. Um, the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Rebellious is antithetical to being 
uh, rebellious as being uh, compliant, obedient. You guys ever heard the phrase, it's all fun and games until somebody gets hurt? Yeah. Um, th- that's kind of what uh, Psalm 68, the very beginning, reminds me of with God's enemies and those who hate him, um, those who do wickedness before God. Uh, we feel like in this life when that kind of thing exists, that justice is never going to happen. Like you can continue in wickedness. You can continue to live that way and nothing will ever take place. It's all fun and games until someone gets hurt. It's, there is coming a judgment. Um, I remember uh, back in my, my high school, um, there was a, we were leaving our high school, and <clears throat> there was only two lanes. We lived in the back country. Um, but there was two-lane highway, and so we all were leaving at the same time, heading into town. Uh, I had a couple of friends in the car with me, and all of a sudden, we see a truck passing us, and they had already passed, I don't know how many cars, and like they were passing several more. They're probably passing about 15 cars or so, all right? This is on a two-lane. Uh, you can pass. Should you pass? That's the question. So they were going. They were getting it, man. And uh, there was a truck. I think there was three, three deeds in the cab and two or three guys in the back. <clears throat> they were laughing, man. They were having a good time. Like They were rocking and rolling, and we were like, man, those guys are crazy. What they didn't know was up ahead, there was a car that was turning left to go into the road. And when that car turned to go left, this truck hit that car, man, T-boned it, and all I saw was bodies flying. And I could not help but to think of this when I thought of this passage. I was like, man, it's fun and games. These guys were having a good time, but they didn't know the danger that lurked ahead. In a lot of ways, like we, when we live this life and we think it belongs to us, there is coming a judgment day. And the Bible talks about judgment being swift, which oftentimes we don't feel like. We feel like, man, justice never happens so swiftly here. But like judgment in the eyes of God is a swift thing, and it's coming. It's inevitable. But let's be clear about something. Uh, while we see the, those first couple of verses, there's like the enemies of God. And verse 3 is like, but the righteous shall be glad. Um, they shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant. So there's this distinguishment between the wicked and the righteous. You and I want to fall on the side of the righteous, right? We're like, okay, we're in that camp. We want to be there. But let's be clear about something. I've said this before. I'll say it again as often as I get a chance to speak. We were all enemies of God. That's Romans chapter 5. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Before being reconciled to God, somebody is an enemy to God. You guys got that? Before someone is reconciled, they're an enemy of God. And so if we fall anywhere in Psalm 68, apart from Christ, we would be in those first, the first verse. We would be the ones who are fleeing before the holy presence of God. We would be the one who is perishing before God. Um, <clears throat> verse 4, his 
name is the Lord. That's who we're to sing praises to. I thought that was interesting. What does it mean to be the Lord, to have authority over someone? Uh, Jesus said this in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Again, I, I'm saying a lot of harsh things up front, but stick with me. okay? And actually, I'm not saying it. This is the Bible. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Jesus said, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we cast out demons in your name? Did we do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you wicked. And then in Luke uh, 6, 46, just a simple statement that Jesus makes to people. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord and pretend I have authority over you? <clears throat> Interesting you find Jesus during his ministry. He was always saying that he came to do the will of the one who sent him. He was always doing the will of the Father. Like that was his heart. That was his desire to always do the will of the Father. And I wonder if we're consumed in the same way. That our desire is to do the will of the one who saved us. If that's missing, listen. Okay? If that's missing, listen up. Um... <clears throat> Verses 1 through 3, uh, praise God as one who is righteous or perish before him as one who is wicked. It's what it sounds like to me. Praise God as one who is righteous or perish before him as one who is wicked. Here's the interesting thought I had as I was thinking about uh, if God is God, he's all powerful, he's holy, he's sovereign over all. How does God have enemies in the first place? It's because of the justice of God in light of sin, or rather the sin in light of God's holiness and justice or just judgment, that enmity is inevitable. How can God be hated? How can there be any who are wicked before him? <clears throat> I want to give you an illustration on God's power and holiness. Uh, the fact that God is good, God is love, God is wrath. How many, uh, how many of you guys in here, uh, whether you're husbands or, or whatever, you've been in a situation um, like I have been in, me and my wife have a lot of battles sometimes over color. Um, apparently, I'm colorblind, and I don't know it. Um, <clears throat> so we've got this blanket at home, and she will tell you this thing is straight up gray, and I'll be like, nope, that's tan, right? <laughs> she says it's gray. I say it's tan. Um, objectively, this thing has a color, right? We're going to go with gray because I'm assuming she's right, right? <clears throat> We're going to say it's gray, but subjectively, we see it in different ways. We go so far as to, uh, I, I, I wish she was in here because I would joke on her because we go so as far to contact our friends and be like, hey, is this thing gray or tan? 
I think oftentimes we do like that. Is God really good? And we go to our friends and be like, is God really good, man? Objectively, God is good regardless of subjectively how we view it. Does that make sense? God is holy no matter how unholy things may happen around us. God is love no matter what happens around us. We're like, that's not loving. God is always good. And that's a tough one, man. Like, there's things happening right now that I'm hearing about. Like, you're like, how can God be good? God is objectively good, always. But subjectively, sometimes we don't see it that way because of the circumstances that happen. Where objectively God is good, he is holy and right. That's who he is. That's his character. He is salvation. Subjectively, we may feel that we do not experience that. And even then, it makes him no less good and gracious. It makes him no less holy and loving. God never changes, by the way. He's always the same. The Bible says Jesus is the same today, yesterday, forever. So we talk about rebellion before God. What does it look like for a person to remain in rebellion toward God? Hebrews 10, uh, verse 31 says, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You guys ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? Jonathan Edwards, uh, early theologian. He was uh, said to be a stimulator, uh, being a big part of the Great Awakening that happened. He gave a sermon one time based uh, sort of off of Hebrews 10, but it was actually out of Deuteronomy 32, 35. Um, He wrote a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he based that out of Deuteronomy 32, which says, Vengeance is mine and recompense. For the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. And I'm going to have some quotes, I believe. We have those for you to read along with me. Um, Man, these are tough to hear. I'm going to be honest with you. If you've ever read The Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, uh, yeah, um, it'll heart check you. If you haven't read it, go check it out. But I'm going to give you just a few pieces of it, okay? I don't hate you guys. I love you guys, okay? Um, Edwards expounds on this as follows. He says, There is no want of power in God to cast wicked men into hell at any moment. Men's hands can't be strong when God rises up. The strongest have no power to resist him, nor can any deliver out of his hands. He also says, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. He also says, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night. 
that you will suffer to awake again in this world after you close your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. You guys encouraged? There's a reality here when we're talking about a holy, powerful God. Now, God doesn't leave us like that. The whole of the gospel, we know we want to talk about the whole of the gospel for God to love the world, right? That he gave his one and only son. We're going to get there. But I want you to see the intensity of God's majesty and our sinfulness in his presence. I'm sure we've all considered how fearful a thing to think of the many, many instances of an armed person going into a place to threaten lives or to kill people. Which is something that's been on the news even a lot lately. Like, I couldn't even imagine being in that horror. I don't want to take that lightly, but I do want to piggyback that thought with this. Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. <clears throat> Interesting how many times an angel showed up to the people or two people to, to share with them a message or something like that. What was usually the first thing an angel always said to somebody when he showed up on the scene? Don't be afraid. Why would you have to say that unless they were what? Afraid, right? <laughs> Man, um, that's crazy. Uh, even John the disciple thought he was dead in the presence of Jesus when given the revelation revealed to him about what was to take place in Revelation chapter 1. John said, when I saw him, talking about Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I'm the first and the last. Paul, speaking to the church at Thessalonica regarding the return of Jesus, he said this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction, to those who afflict you. Pay attention to this part. Because a lot of times when we picture Jesus, we want to paint, paint him in a specific light. Then there's this. And to grant you or grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. There's a distinction. You're either a saint in Christ or you are those who don't believe and are against him. We do not just remain in rebellion, but the wrath of God remains on us. You guys ever heard of John chapter 3, verse 36? 
And Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There is a coming wrath, but the wrath of God remains on him. So this morning, I want to say this again, man. I'm not trying to scare you, but I will speak the truth to you. If you're not in Christ this morning, you have not been saved from your sins, and you are still dead in your sins and not trusting in Christ. The Bible says that the wrath of God remains on you, which means it must be on you to begin with, right? You haven't seen the outcome of that wrath yet, but there is a day coming, and that's from from Christ. Revelation 19, uh, also speaking of the coming judgment of Christ, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And then John the Baptist says this in Matthew 3, speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees when they came to be baptized, or at least to check out his baptism. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? You guys ever been uh, hounded by a collections agency, personally? Besides me, don't lie either, because I'm not the only one who had a collections agency call you, all right? My wife and I are currently going through that. Uh, we, we got some bills from our, our latest son with some, like, miscommunication or something that happened with the insurance company. Uh, but eventually, man, like, if, if you ever had bills owed to a particular business and you don't pay that business, they kick it over to collections. And now the collections are the hounds, and they won't give up <laughs> until you pay. Um, <clears throat> In the same way, man, uh, the collection of God's wrath, there is coming a time. In life, there's a debt that we all owe and cannot pay. We are all sinners, all guilty, all fall short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin is death. The wrath of God remains on all the guilty, rebellious souls who choose to reject God's salvation. Collections in the form of eternal destruction will come for all who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Man, I felt like that was like a lot of pressing down on you guys. That's your truth of the Bible. Uh, When we talk about the good news of Jesus, we want to saturate the valley with the good news of, of Jesus. You understand why that's good news? You understand why God's grace is so amazing that we sing about? If you didn't get this first part, all that push down about how what happens to the wicked and how we all fall in that same boat, if we don't get that, God's grace is not amazing to us. All right? <clears throat> but here's the deal. We can live in rebellion and it will lead to destruction or repentance before God will lead to salvation. That's awesome. That's awesome. Though God will arise and the wicked perish before him, God desires. Now here's the deal. It's true about God being holy. He's all powerful. Perish before the holy presence of God is going to happen. But God desires that none do perish. That's the heart of God. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise about his coming. 
but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but for all to come to repentance. God desires all to come to repentance. That's his heart, man. He doesn't want to see anyone in judgment. John 3.16, you're well aware of this one. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. <clears throat> Isaiah 50, how am I doing on time anyway? Am I ruining this? So, so let, oh, I still have three hours. Sweet. Um, Isaiah 57.15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Why do you think people go crazy over celebrities? By the way, are you one of those people? You guys go crazy when you see a celebrity in, in public. You're like, oh, look who that is. Why is that? Is it because, like, hey, man, like, they were there, like, on the... TV and now they're here. God's the greatest celebrity, the most famous, deserving the greatest praise, without whom none of us would exist. He was there in eternity, the ancient heavens, and he came among us. He came among his own creation. And you know what happened in John chapter 1? What do we do as humanity? It says we didn't even recognize him. People recognize celebrities, right? Like they can pick them out super easy. They're that famous. But when Jesus came, it says no one recognized the God who created it all. They didn't know him. Matter of fact, it says not only did they not recognize him, they didn't receive him. He was in the world. The world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Are we contrite? Are we crushed and broken over our own sin? Are we lowly? Are we humble? Do we recognize who God is? How he has revealed himself to us in Jesus? Have we received him? And I'm asking that in a personal question. Have you received Jesus? John 1.12 says this. You don't have to live in that state of rebellion, by the way. There doesn't have to be an eternal destruction for you. John 1, 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Woo! Right? He gave the right to become children of God. You're in one of the two places today, by the way. If you haven't heard these two, distinction, two distinctions the whole time, wicked, righteous, you're a child of, child of God or you're not, Lastly in those, rejoicing comes as a result of righteousness. 1 Peter chapter 1 says this, uh, verses 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, God is worthy of our praise for coming to us, for bringing a rescue, for working in our lives. He is worthy of praise because he is overall. Not only is it from a place of salvation and personal relationship that we get to praise him, 
but we can better understand the praise he deserves at all times from all peoples. Does the salvation of God, his deliverance over us, his making us righteous and not counting us among the wicked cause us to be glad, to rejoice, to sing praises to his name? And by the way, when, when it goes from like the wicked perishing and then the righteous being glad, like I wonder why they're glad. Like I, I think there's a part of that they're glad because not just God, God's enemies, but their enemies are being defeated. But I wonder if there's a part of their gladness. They're like, man, I'm not a part of that. And I should be. I should be among the wicked. I should be the one that's perishing, but I'm not. And there's nothing I did. It's like, I rejoice. I'm glad. Right? Man. <clears throat> You guys ever like something so much that you have to tell somebody about it? Favorite restaurant, something like that? You guys ever did that before? Raise, raise a hand, by the way. You got to get some involvement here. Um, that happens a lot around here because there's like a gazillion restaurants. And uh, you ever done that, man? Like you built up a restaurant so much, you're like, man, you got you to go here, you got to try this, and you talked it up. Man, you loved it. It was great. And then they went and they were like, meh, it's okay. <laughs> right? I've done the same thing. Like, people tell me and Kristen about a restaurant, and we're like, no. they said, that was good. No way, man. I wonder if the way we view Christ's salvation in our life is much the same way, where our response to it is, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. I think we've missed the majesty of God. I think we've missed his holiness. I think we have missed... His redeeming us from rebellion and the wrath that was on us to being saved and brought into newness of life. Kind of like Kristen going out of the way, my wife, going out of her way to fix a dinner for me. Man, she went to pick out all these ingredients. Like, she was going to go way out of her way. Mad ingredients. Worked on it long. She wanted to bless me. And all I could give her was a distracted thanks. There was a story that Jesus gave one time about uh, 10 lepers. They were begging Jesus to heal them. He said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourselves uh, to the priest. Find us to the page here. And as they went, as they were on their way, they were cleansed. Then one of them When he saw that he was healed, he turned back praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were there not ten who were cleansed? Where's the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except for this foreigner? Ten were healed, man. They were begging. They said, God have mercy on us. Jesus healed them, and only one came back 
fell at his feet to worship. They all asked for mercy. They were all cleansed, all healed. Only one came. And this one who came back was one who was not as familiar with God as those to whom God had revealed himself so often. Looking again at the differences of God's own people and those who are his enemies, those who are of God's procession, the righteous, are singing. They make music. They praise God. Those who are God's enemies, it says that the enemies of God come cringing to him. Psalm 68, verse 21, says that God will strike the heads of the enemies. So we will either be the object of God's wrath or take place in celebrating his holiness and justice. We will either be the object of God's wrath or we will take place in celebrating his justice, his holiness. There is no in-between. The Bible doesn't leave any room for that. There's a song, I didn't, uh, I didn't find this in time to send it over to our, our worship team, but uh, <clears throat> actually, you, and you guys can come on up if you would, but uh, I didn't send this song to the worship team, so I'm going to throw it on my mouth to learn it and play it. I'm just kidding. <clears throat> but it's called All I Have is Christ by Sovereign Grace, and I love the, the words, the verses here. Um, I'm going to read this to you, and man, I was like, how fitting these words in response to the salvation of God and the fact that he's worthy to be praised. It says, I was lost in darkest night, yet I thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Man, none of us deserve that. If he didn't choose me first, man, I would still deny him. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. This is a time of response for you guys. Whatever you want to make of this, whatever you want to do, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit is doing some stirring. I, know, I realize this was a challenge this morning. I didn't want to depart from the text so much, but this is what the Lord led on me to say. And I hope it stayed true to Psalm 68 somewhat, but I think we got more of a, a systematic view there. Um, but here's the deal, man. God loves you. God made you. He doesn't want you to stay in rebellion. If you've never trusted in Christ, man, today is your day of salvation. There's going to be some guys, I believe, who are going to be in the back. Uh, they'll be there available to pray with anyone who would like to pray. If you've never made a decision, if you've been toying with this, you're like, man, I, I don't know. Like, I, I've been wrestling with who Jesus is. I've been wrestling with this. Like, I hope this is super plain this morning. And I'm just calling you to repent. Um, 
Did you know that uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians, he told the Corinthians, he says, it says he begged them, be reconciled to God. So, like, that's my begging to you. Like, be reconciled to God. Rebellion will lead to destruction. But you can repent today and trust in Jesus. Repent means to change your mind about sin, to admit you're a sinner before God, and trust in Jesus alone to save you. And you know what repentance turns into? Rejoicing. You can't help it. You're like, man, I, I was there. <laughs> I deserved to be judged. But he saved me. And it wasn't because of me. It's because he's good and he sought me out. So the uh, band's going to play, I, th- I think, at least three. You guys have a long time to consider this. But I pray the Holy Spirit stirs you as you're there. Um, we've got tables to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, do this at your own discretion. Um, come through. Uh, this table represents the body of Christ that was broken for us, the blood of Christ that was poured out for us. The body of Jesus was broken. He was crushed so that we might be saved. His blood was poured out so we would be forgiven. Let that remind you, like, the wrath was poured out on Jesus. It doesn't have to be on me. If you've already trusted Jesus, then you go to the table, man, and and you thank God in celebration. You rejoice. You exult. Tables are open. Please come and partake. If you need to see me, I'll be in the back as well. Appreciate you guys. Let me pray with you. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much for these guys. Thank you for uh, your word, your truth. Thank you that you um, came to meet us where we're at. Thank you, Lord, for taking our sins in your body on the cross, for dying in our place, for taking the wrath that we deserve. I remember what you said in the garden, Jesus, when you were praying. You said, God, if there's any other way for this to take place, let this cup pass from me. And Lord, I see so much in your, your word. This cup means the cup of wrath. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. And I pray this morning, Lord, uh, if there's anyone who's hearing this who hasn't trusted in you, Jesus, today would be their day of salvation. That they would trust in you, Lord, and that the wrath of God would pass from them. And they would realize that your wrath has been taken. We love you. Thank you for this morning. We rejoice. In your name we pray.